0: Welcome back to History Plus True Crime Uncovered, a new podcast series all about historical stories, people, and places. Disclaimer, some content in this episode may be sensitive to some listeners. Discretion is advised for those under the age of 13. On this episode, I am going to be discussing multiple women who were brought forward to justice, some convicted and some not. As stated in a previous episode, I will go over the Lizzie Borden case, and that's where we will begin. The case was memorialized in a popular skipping rope rhyme sung to the tune of then popular song Tra Ra Boom DA. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. In reality, Lizzie's stepmother suffered 18 or 19 blows, while her father suffered 11 blows. The rhyme has a less well-known second verse. Andrew Borden now is dead. Lizzie hit him on the head. Up in heaven he will sing. On the gallows she will swing lizzie andrew borden was an american woman who was tried and acquitted of the august 4th 1892 axe murders of her father and stepmother in fall river massachusetts no one else was charged in the murders and despite ostracism from other residents borden spent the remainder of her life in fall river she died of pneumonia at the age of 66 just days before the death of her older sister emma The Borden murders and trial received widespread publicity throughout the United States, and along with Borden herself, they remain a topic in American popular culture to to the present day. They have been depicted in numerous films, theatrical productions, literary works, and full crimes that are still very well known in the Fall River area. Lizzie Andrew Borden was born on July 19, 1860 in Fall River, Massachusetts, to Sarah Anthony Borden, maiden name Morse, who lived from 1823 to 1863, and Andrew Jackson Borden, who lived from 1822 to 1892. Her father, who was of English and Welsh descent, grew up in a very modest surroundings and struggled financially as a young man, despite being the descendant of wealthy and influential local residents. Andrew eventually prospered in the manufacture and sale of furniture and ca- Caskets. Then became a successful property developer. He was a director of several textile mills and owned considerable commercial property. He was also president of the Union Savings Bank and a director of the Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company. At his death, his estate was valued at $300,000 or $10,146,890 in 2023. Despite his wealth, Andrew was known for his frugality. For instance, the border, Borden residents lacked indoor plumbing, even though at the time it was a common accommodation for the wealthy. The house stood in an affluent area, but the wealthiest residents of Fall River, including Andrew's cousins, generally lived in the more fashionable neighborhood, The Hill, which was further from the industrial areas of the city. Lizzie and her older sister, Emma Lenora Borden, born 1851, died 1927, had a relatively religious upbringing and attended Central Congregational Church. As a young woman, Lizzie was very involved in church activities, including teaching Sunday school to the children of recent immigrants in the United States. She was involved in religious organizations such as the Christian Endeavor Society for which she served as secular. Secretary Treasurer, and contemporary social movements such as the Woman's Christian Temperance Union. She was also a member of the Ladies Fruit and Flower Mission. Three years after the death of Lizzie's mother, Andrew married Abby Durfee Gray. 1828 to 1892. Lizzie later stated that she called her stepmother, Mrs. Borden, and demurred on whether they had a cordial relationship. She believed that Abby had married her father for his wealth. Bridget Sullivan, whom they called Maggie, the Borden's 25-year-old live-in maid who had immigrated to the U.S. from Ireland, testified that Lizzie and Emma rarely ate meals with their parents. In May 1892, Andrew killed multiple pigeons in his barn with a hatchet, believing that they were attracting local children to hunt them. Lizzie had recently built a roost for the pigeons, and it had been commonly recounted that she was upset over his killing of them though the veracity of this has been disputed. A family argument in July 1892 prompted both sisters to take an extended vacation in New Bedford. After returning to Fall River a week before the murders, Lizzie chose to stay in a local rooming house for four days before returning to the Borden residence. Tension had been growing within the Borden family in the months before the murders, especially over Andrew's gifts of real estate to various branches of Abby's family. After their stepmother's sister received a house, the sisters demanded and received a rental property, the home that they had lived in until their mother died, which they purchased from their father for $1. A few weeks before the murders, they sold the property back to their father for $5,000 or... $170,993 in 2023. The night before the murders, John Morris, Lizzie and Emma's maternal uncle, visited and was invited to stay for a few days to discuss business matters with Andrew, leading to speculation that their conversation, particularly about property transfer, may have aggravated an already tense situation. For several days before the murders, the entire household had been violently ill. A family friend later speculated that mutton left on the stove to use in meals over several days was the cause. Abby had feared poison given that Andrew had not been a popular man in Fall River. Morse arrived in the evening of August 3rd and slept in the guest room that night. After breakfast the next morning at which Andrew, Abby, Morse, and Sullivan were present, Andrew and Morse went to the sitting room where they chatted for nearly an hour. Morse left around 8.48 a.m. to buy a pair of oxen and visit his niece in Fall River, planning to return to the Borden home for lunch at noon. Andrew left for his morning walk sometime after 9 a.m. Although the cleaning of the guest room was one of Lizzie and Emma's regular chores, Abby went upstairs sometime between 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. to make the bed. According to the forensic investigation, Abby was facing her killer at the time of the attack. She was first struck on the side of the head with a hatchet, which cut her just above the ear, causing her to turn and fall face down on the floor, creating contusions on her nose and forehead. Her killer then struck her multiple times, delivering 17 more direct hits to the back of her head, killing her. When Andrew returned at around 10.30 a.m., his key failed to open the door, so he knocked. Sullivan went to unlock the door. Finding it jammed, she uttered a curse. She would later testify that she heard Lizzie laughing immediately after this. She did not see Lizzie, but stated that the laughter was coming from the top of the stairs. This was considered significant, as Abby was already dead by this time and her body would have been visible to anyone on the home's second floor. Lizzie later denied being upstairs and testified that her father had asked her where Abby was, to which she replied that a messenger had delivered Abby a summons to visit a sick friend. Sullivan stated that she had then removed Andrew's boots and helped him into his slippers before he laid down on the sofa for a nap, a detail contradicted by the crime scene photos which show Andrew wearing boots. She testified that she was in her third floor room, resting from cleaning windows when just before 11.10 a.m. she heard Lizzie call from downstairs, Maggie, come quick, father's dead, somebody came in and killed him. Andrew was slumped on a couch in the downstairs sitting room, struck 10 or 11 times with a hatchet-like weapon. One of his eyes had been split cleanly in two, suggesting that he had been asleep when attacked. His still-bleeding wounds suggested a very recent attack. Dr. Bowen, the family's physician, arrived from his home across the street and pronounced both victims dead. Detectives estimated that Andrew's death had occurred at approximately 11 a.m. Lizzie's initial answers to the police officer's questions were at times strange and contradictory. Initially, she reported hearing a groan or a scraping noise or a distress call before entering the house. Two hours later, she told the police she had heard nothing and entered the house, not realizing that anything was wrong. When asked where her stepmother was, she re- recounted Abby receiving a note, asking her to visit a sick friend. She also stated that she thought Abby had returned and asked if someone could go upstairs and look for her. Sullivan and a neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, were halfway up the stairs, their eyes, eyes level with the floor, when they looked into the guest room and saw Abby lying face down on the floor. Most of the officers who interviewed Lizzie reported that they disliked her attitude. Some said she was too calm and poised. Despite her behavior and changing alibis, she was not checked for blood stains. Police did search her room, but it was a cursory inspection. At the trial, they admitted to not doing a proper search because Lizzie was not feeling very well. They were subsequently criticized for their lack of diligence. In the basement, police found two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head with a broken handle. The hatchet head was suspected of being the murder weapon as the break in the handle appeared fresh and the ash and dust on the head, unlike that of the two other bladed tools, appeared to have been deliberately applied to make it look as if it had been in the basement for some time. However, none of these tools were removed from the house. Because of the mysterious illness that had stricken the household before the murders, the family's milk and the victim's stomachs, removed during autopsies performed in the board and dining room, were tested for poison. None was found. Residents suspected Lizzie of purchasing hydrocarbons. Cyanic acid in a diluted form from the local druggist. Her defense was that she inquired about the acid in order to clean her furs, despite the local medical examiner's testimony that it did not have antiseptic properties. Lizzie and Emma's friend Alice Russell decided to stay with the sisters the night following the murders while Moore spent the night in the attic guest room. Contrary to later accounts that he slept in the murder site guest room. Police were stationed around the house on the night of August 4th, during which an officer said he had seen Lizzie enter the cellar with Russell, carrying a kerosene lamp and a slop pail. He stated he saw both women exit the cellar, after which Lizzie returned alone, though he was unable to see what she was doing. He stated it appeared she was bent over the sink. On August 5th, Morse left the Borden residence and was mobbed by hundreds of people. Police had to escort him back to the house. The following day, police conducted a more thorough search of the house, inspecting the sister's clothing and confiscating the broken-handled hatchet head. That evening, a police officer and the mayor visited the house and Lizzie was informed that she was a suspect in the murders. The next morning, Russell entered the kitchen to find Borden tearing up a dress. She explained that she was planning to put it on the fire because it was covered in paint. It was never determined whether it was the dress she had been wearing the day of the murders. Lizzie appeared at the inquest hearing on August 8th. Her request to have her family attorney present was re- refused, under a state statute providing that an inquest must be held in private. She had been prescribed regular doses of morphine to calm her nerves and it is possible that her testimony was affected by this. Her behavior was erratic and she often refused to answer a question even if the answer would be beneficial to her. She often contradicted herself and provided alternating accounts of the morning in question, such as saying she was in the kitchen reading a magazine when her father arrived home, then saying she was in the dining room doing some ironing, and then saying she was coming down the stairs. The district attorney was very aggressive and confrontational. On August 11th, Lizzie was served with a warrant of arrest and jailed. The inquest testimony, the basis for the modern debate regarding Lizzie's guilt or innocence, was later ruled inadmissible at her trial in June 1893. Contemporary newspaper articles noted that Lizzie possessed a stolid demeanor and bit her lips flushed and bent toward attorney Adams. It was also reported that the testimony provided in the inquest had caused a change of opinion among her friends who had heretofore strongly maintained her innocence. The inquest received significant press attention nationwide, including an extensive three-page write-up in the Boston Globe. A grand jury began hearing evidence on November 7th, and Borden was indicted on December 2nd. Lizzie's trial took place in New Bedford starting on June 5, 1893. Prosecuting attorneys were Hosea M. Knowlton and future United States Supreme Court Justice William H. Moody. Defending were Andrew V. Jennings, Melvin O. Adams and former Massachusetts Governor George D. Robinson. Five days before the trial's commencement on June 1st, another axe murder occurred in Fall River. This time the victim was Bertha Manchester who was found hacked to death in her kitchen. The similarities between the Manchester and Borden murders were striking and noted by jurors. Jose Correra de Mello, a Portuguese immigrant, was later convicted of Manchester's murder in eighteen ninety four and was determined to not have been in the vicinity of Fall River at the time of the Borden murders. A prominent point of discussion in the trial and press coverage of it was the Hatchet Head Fan found in the basement, which was not convincingly demonstrated by the prosecution to be the murder weapon. Prosecutors argued that the killer had removed the handle because it would have been covered in blood. One officer testified that a hatchet handle was found near the hatchet head, but another officer contradicted this. Though no bloody clothing was found at the scene, Russell testified that on August 8, 1892, she had witnessed Lizzie burn a dress in the kitchen stove, saying it had been ruined when she brushed against wet paint. During the course of the trial, defense never attempted to challenge this statement. Lizzie's presence at the home was also a point of dispute during the trial. According to testimony, Sullivan entered the second floor at around 10.58 a.m. and left Lizzie and her father downstairs. Lizzie told several people that at this time she went into the barn and was not in the house for 20 minutes or possibly half an hour. Hyman Lubinsky testified for the defense that he saw Lizzie leaving the barn at 11.03 a.m. and Charles Gardner confirmed the time. At 11.10 a.m., Lizzie called Sullivan downstairs, told her Andrew had been murdered, and ordered her not to enter the room. Instead, Lizzie sent her to get a doctor. Both victims' heads had been removed for during the autopsy, and the skulls were admitted as evidence during the trial and presented on June 5, 1893. Upon seeing them in the courtroom, Lizzie fainted. Evidence concluded that she had sought to purchase prussic acid, or hydrox sorry, hydrogen cyanide purportedly for cleaning a seal skin cloak from the local druggist on the day before the murders. The judge ruled that the incident was too remote in time to have any connection. The presiding associate justice, Justin Dewey, who had been appointed by Robinson when he was governor, delivered a lengthy summary that supported the defense as his charge to the jury before it was sent to deliberate on June 20th, 1893. About an hour and a half of deliberation, the jury acquitted Lizzie Borden of the murders. Upon exiting the courthouse, she told reporters she was, quote, the happiest woman in the world, end quote. Odd, right? The trial had been compared to the later trials of Bruno Hopman, Ethel, and Julius Rosenberg and O.J. Simpson as a landmark in publicity and public interest in the history of American legal proceedings. After the trial, the Borden sisters moved into a large modern house in the Hill neighborhood in Fall River. Around this time, Lizzie began using the name Lizbeth A. Borden at their new house, which Lizbeth dubbed Maplecroft. They had a staff that included live-in maids, a housekeeper, and a coachman. Because Abby was ruled to have died before Andrew, her estate went first to Andrew, then at his death passed to his daughters as part of his estate. A considerable settlement, however, was paid to settle claims by Abby's family. Despite the acquittal, Lizzie was ostracized by Fall River Society. Her name was again brought into the public eye when she was accused of shoplifting in Providence, Rhode Island in 1897. In 1905, shortly after an argument over a party that Lizbeth had given for actress Nance O'Neill, Emma moved out of the house and never saw her sister again. Lizzie was ill in her last year following the removal of her gallbladder. She died of pneumonia on June 1st, 1927, in Fall River at the age of 66. Funeral details were not published and few attended. Nine days later, Emma died from chronic nephritis in a nursing home in Newmarket, New Hampshire, having moved to this location in 1923 both for health reasons and to avoid renewed attention following the publication of another book about the murders. The Borden sisters, neither of whom had ever married, were buried side by side in the family plot in Oak Grove Cemetery. At the time of her death, Lizzie Borden was worth over $250,000, or the equivalent of $5,652,000 in today's economy. She owned a house on the corner of French Street and Belmont Street, several office buildings, shares, and several utilities two cars and a large amount of jewelry. She left $30,000 or the equivalent to $678,000 in 2022 to the Fall River Animal Rescue League and $500 or about $11,000 in today's economy in trust for perpetual care of her father's grave. Her closest friend and cousin each received $6,000, which would be $136,000 today, substantial sums at the time of the estate's distribution in 1927, and numerous friends and family members each received between $1,000 and $5,000. The Lizzie Borden House is infamous for its history of pointed fingers, unsolved murder, and axes. We've all heard of the Lizzie Borden case, but what about Eliza Borden? Lizzie's name yells loudly throughout the paranormal community, ringing bells in everyone's mind who hears it uttered. But Eliza committed murders just as tragic as Lizzie's. We all know of Lizzie's alleged murders of her stepmother and father that she was acquitted of, the anger that lived inside the house with them, and the cover-ups that occurred after, setting Lizzie free to live out the rest of her life in Fall River, Massachusetts, as a free woman. But have you heard of the murders in the well of Eliza Darling Borden? Does this name ring any bells for you? Here, we will discuss just exactly what occurred in who she is and the unspeakable acts she committed. And how it connects to Lizzie Borden. The story starts with Lizzie's great uncle, Ludwig and has long been a lesser-known footnote to the saga of the Lizzie Borden Axe Murders of 1892. Lodwick Borden was the son of Martha Petty Borden Bowen and Richard Borden. Lodwick lived a normal life, as normal as could be for the late 1800s. He was a ladies' man and enjoyed the company of four wives throughout his lifetime, not too unusual as women died in childbirth, quite often back in those times his second wife eliza darling borden has genuinely piqued the interest of the paranormal community and the excitement of all who hear of her Looking back on her unthinkable acts, it is clear that Eliza suffered greatly from postpartum depression, a condition not familiar to the women of the 1800s. Mental health was mainly ignored and swept under the rug during those times for it was considered shameful to have any mental issues or disabilities. Eliza had three children with Ludwig in very rapid succession. Holder, Eliza Ann, and Maria, With details clouded by time, all that is known is that she killed two of her three children, sparing Maria, and took her own life soon after. It is said that she brutally murdered two of her children by tossing them down the property's cellar cistern and afterwards went upstairs in the small Cape Cod-style home, slicing her own throat with Ludwig's straight razor. Other versions claim that she committed suicide behind the cellar chimney, unable to make it up the stairs, her grief so intense even worse in order to finish the deed eliza would have had to spend a reasonable amount of time drowning the children in the cistern or even just throwing them in their tiny bodies unable to escape and soon drowning after exhaustion set in it's even thought that eliza's husband lodwick committed suicide shortly after the ordeal unable to deal with what his wife had done and the loss of his children this left maria to deal with the with the world on her own and knowing, and one could only hope that she did not grow up knowing of the horrors of what her mother had done. Tragedy runs rampant in the Borden family, and it has occurred for so long due to Lizzie Borden's act. Acts in her trial of 1893, Lizzie herself was carefully examined to determine if she were mentally competent and able to stand trial to be held accountable for the crime that she had committed. Questions were asked about her sanity and the mental state of the Borden family in general. Of course, the prosecution brought up the topic of Eliza Borden and her unfortunate children and was introduced as possible source of inherited madness. The defense quickly shot down this claim, and Eliza was only a Borden through marriage, after all, her bloodline not coexisting with the Borden clan. Mentions were also made that the one surviving child, Maria Borden, was alive and flourishing in the city with her children. Another strange fact, Maria Borden's husband, Samuel Hinckley, was a boarder in the Borden house in 1850 when Maria was just a young girl of five. Samuel was 18 at the time. The two wed on October 3rd of 1866. An age difference of such intensity was expected back in those times, but it is bizarre that he unknowingly became part of the house's tragic history, not knowing what would occur there. On to the next case. This one is of... The the case involving Frances Stewart Silver. Frances Stewart Silver was hanged in Morganton, Burke County, North Carolina, in 1833 for the axe murder of her husband, Charles Silver. Frankie Silver, as she was known, is to believed to have been the first woman executed in North Carolina. She was born Frances Stewart, the daughter of Isaiah and Barbara Stewart. The family moved to Burke County when Frankie was young probably around 1820. They lived in the town of Kona, near the home of Jacob Silver, who had lost his wife Elizabeth in childbirth. His son Charlie Silver was a year older than Frankie. Charlie and Frankie married and initially seemed a good pair. On November 3rd, 1830, their first daughter, Nancy, was born. They lived in a wooden cabin on land gifted by Jacob Silver at christmas 1831 charlie apparently went missing while out hunting A search party could not find him. Jack Collis decided to investigate while Frankie was in the village. In January of 1832, Cullis found bones in the fireplace and bloodstains on the floor. He called the sheriff. They found a head. He was determined that on December 22, 1831, Charles Silver, a.k.a. Johnny Silver, was hacked to death with an axe and later dismembered in the cabin he shared with his wife Frankie and their 13-month-old daughter Nancy. The investigation into the whereabouts of Charles Silver found a fireplace full of oily ashes, a pool of blood that had flowed through the cabin's puncheon floor, and the blood spatters on the inside walls of the cabin. Pieces of bone and flesh were discovered in ashes poured into a mortar hole near the spring, as well as a heel iron similar to those worn by Charles on his hunting moccasins. According to Silver Family lore, the evidence showed that Charles had been murdered and his body had been burned to hide the evidence. Shortly after the murder, suspicion fell on Charles' wife, Frankie, her mother, Barbara Stewart, and her brother, Jackson Blackstone Stewart. All three were arrested. Barbara and Blackstone Stewart pled not guilty before a magistrate on January 17, 1832, and were discharged. Frankie alone stood trial for the murder. The motive for the murder is still not clear. It was claimed during the trial that Frankie was a jealous wife seeking revenge. Later theories asserted that she was an abused wife. There is no definitive evidence for either theory. Despite claims made by journalists at the time, Frankie never confessed, nor did she discuss her motive. There is a theory that Frankie wanted to move west with her parents to join other family members, but that Charles Silver refused to do so. There was also speculation that her frustration with Charles' refusal was the motive for the murder. The trial of Frankie began on March 29, 1832. Evidence would now be considered circumstantial. The jury was undecided, but after receiving instruction, had a further meeting and found Frankie guilty. Frankie could either be interpreted as a family ties murderer for the possibility that she manipulated family members to help kill her husband, or a battered woman murderer for the possibility that she killed him in self-defense during one of the beatings he would give her. Whatever happened that night inside the family cabin remains a mystery. It is probable that she was a victim of abuse from her husband due to the fact that a petition was signed by townswomen and several members of the all-male jury in Frankie's favor. However, this petition did not sway the governor. Another reason this will always remain a mystery is because as Frankie was asked about her last words, legend has it, her father yelled out from the crowd, quote, Die with it in you, Frankie, end quote. This made some believe, along with them helping her escape, that family members were involved in the killing of Charles Silver. During the time between her sentencing and hanging, Frankie was broken out of jail by someone who entered by the way of one of the basement windows. With the aid of false keys, this person opened the doors leading to the prisoner's apartment. Frankie was arrested again seven days later in Henderson County, walking behind her father's wagon heading to Tennessee. When taken, she was also dressed in men's clothing and her hair had been cut short. Her father and uncle were jailed as accessories to her escape. Frankie was hanged at Morgantown, North Carolina, on Friday, July 12, 1833. Frankie's father had intended to bring his daughter's body home and bury it in the family burial plot. However, extreme heat and humidity in North Carolina that year forced him to bury it in an unmarked grave behind the Buckhorn Tavern a few miles west of Morganton. For many years, the exact location of the grave was unknown, but it is now believed to be in a remote corner of present-day DeVault Farm. In 1952, a granite stone marking the probable location of the grave was placed by Beatrice Cobb, editor of the Morganson newspaper. The marker misspells Frankie's married name as Silvers. And next, we'll talk about Lizzie Holliday, not to be confused with Lizzie Borden. Guess this was another Lizzie who possibly got away with her crimes. She lived from 1859 to June 28, 1918. She was born Eliza Margaret McNally was an Irish-American serial killer responsible for the deaths of four people in upstate New York during the 1890s. In 1894, she became the first woman to be sentenced to death by the electric chair. Holiday's sentence was commuted and she spent the rest of her life in a mental institution. She killed a nurse while institutionalized and is speculated to have killed her first two husbands. Holiday, originally Eliza Margaret McDowell, was born around 1859 in County Atram, Ireland. Her family moved to the U.S. when she was young, given as age three or eight. In 1879, Holliday married a Greenwich, New York man known as the alias Charles Hopkins. His real name was Ketz Brown. They are said to have had one son who ended up institutionalized. In 1881, after Hopkins' death, she married pensioner Artemis Brewer, but he also died less than a year later. Her third husband, Hiram Parkinson, left her within a year the first year of their marriage. Holiday went on to marry George Smith, a war veteran who had served with Brewer. After a reported failed attempt to kill Smith by putting arsenic in his tea, Lizzie fled to Bellows Falls, Vermont. She married Vermont resident Charles Playdell but she vanished two weeks later. In the winter of 1888, Holliday resurfaced in Philadelphia at a saloon on 1218 north front street that was run by the McQuillans, friends she knew from ireland going by the name maggie hopkins holiday set up a shop but was later convicted of burning it down for the insurance money she was sentenced to two years of philadelphia's eastern state penitentiary in 1889 now going by the name lizzie brown she became the housekeeper for paul holiday a twice widowed 70 year old farmer living in burlingham new york with his sons their marriage was marred by what holiday described as lizzie's sporadic spells of insanity within two years the holiday family's house and barn burned to the ground and she was suspected of setting the fires at some point she stole a team of horses and had a neighbor help her drive them to Newburgh, new york where she sold them she was acquitted of the crime on the grounds of insanity accounts vary on this happening in 1890 or 1893 In May 1891, the Holiday House was burned to the ground, killing Holiday's mentally handicapped son, John. She was again suspected of setting the fire since she was known to have disliked John. She claimed that he died trying to save her from the flames, but his locked bedroom door was discovered in the rubble, and Holiday was in possession of the key. Soon after, she burned down the Holiday Barn and Mill as well. She attempted to run off with another man, but was arrested and sent to an asylum. She was transferred to another asylum but was then declared cured and released returning home to holiday paul holiday disappeared that august she claimed he had gone to a nearby town to do masonry work following the neighbor's suspicions that something was not right about her story a search warrant was obtained and on september 4th the bodies of two women were found buried in hay in a barn both had been shot the women were later identified as margaret and sarah mcquillan new york residents who were part of the family lizzie had stayed with in philadelphia little could be ascertained from holiday as when questioned she behaved in an erratic manner tearing at her clothes and talking incoherently she was kept in custody and some thought she was merely faking insanity A few days after the McQuillans were found, Paul Holliday's mutilated body was discovered under the floorboards of his house. He had also been shot. Lizzie was charged with the murders and held for trial at the Sullivan County Jail in Monticello, New York. During her first few months there, she refused to eat, attacked the sheriff's wife, set fire to her own bed, ironic, (laughs) tried to hang herself and cut her own throat with broken glass, about which she said, quote, I thought I would cut myself to see if I would bleed, end quote. Her jailers were forced to chain her to the floor during her remaining months there. While she was in jail, Lizzie received national attention with one sensational story about after another appearing across the country in tabloid newspapers. The New York World portrayed Lizzie's case as unprecedented and almost without peril in the annals of crime. She was also covered by the world's Nellie Bly, who eventually managed to get an interview with Lizzie in which she revealed her previous marriages. Facts Bly was able to confirm. Another useful source of reports was Robert Holliday, Paul Holliday's son. The Sullivan County Sheriff started a new round of speculation when he told the press that Lizzie was probably connected to the Jack the Ripper murders, although no connection was ever made. The revelation that she had been married five times before she wed Paul Holliday, that two of her husbands had died less than a year after their weddings, and that Lizzie had tried to poison a third, led the press to speculate that she was responsible for at least six deaths. Quote, Whether these men died natural deaths or were murdered is not known. End quote. From the New York Times noted in June 1894. Lizzie also made a claim, Confided to Robert Holliday that she had killed a husband in Belfast, but had managed to conceal the crime. On June 21, 1894, Holliday was convicted at the Sullivan County Oyer Interminer Court for the murder of Margaret McQuillan and Sarah Jane McQuillan. She became the first woman ever to be sentenced to death by electrocution via New York State's new electric chair, Governor Roswell P. Flower commuted her sentence to life in a mental institution after a medical commission declared her insane. Holiday was sent to the Madawan State Hospital for Criminally Insane, where she spent the remainder of her life. She became a model patient and was trusted with sewing privileges, giving her access to tools, including scissors. She grew close to Nellie Wicks, one of the attendants, but she was deeply upset by Wicks' plans to leave the institution. In 1906, she killed Wicks by stabbing her 200 times with a pair of scissors. Holliday died of Bright's disease on June 28, 1918, after spending nearly half her life in the asylum. And this is just another case of a woman who was guilty and, um, you know, kind of got away with it, you know. I mean, she she went to mental institu- Institution, but um, yeah, so that just like, what, three cases I um, went over. Um, I'll do a part two at another time, adding um, other cases. Uh, This is the end of this episode. However, if you have uh, requests for future episodes, please feel free to leave a comment. Um, You know, leave a review. Give me any insight into what you're thinking of these episodes. And I, I just love to hear about it. But until then, that's it. I'll see you later.